Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, September 6th. The latest report on housing from Remax points to the national real estate market remaining flat for the remainder of 2023. But will the same be true in the city of Calgary? And what's your best move in the months ahead if you're looking to buy or sell? We get the thoughts of realtor Justin Haver of Justin Haver & Associates, Remax First. Does the trial of Freedom Convoy organizers Tamara Leach and Chris Barber raise questions surrounding the limits of free speech in our country? We tackle the topic with Clarice Perrin, instructor of philosophy from Dalhousie University. And finally, it's going to be hard to keep artificial intelligence out of the classroom this year. So what role will it play and how do educators plan on addressing concerns surrounding the budding technology? We discuss the issue with Sarah Eaton, Associate Professor of Education at the University of Calgary. The high interest rates we've been experiencing are expected to soften the national real estate market, but does that hold true for us here in Calgary? Joining us to discuss the Calgary area real estate forecast this fall is Justin Haver, realtor with Justin Haver and Associates, Remax First. Welcome back to the program and a happy Wednesday to you, Justin. Good morning, Andy, and thanks for having me here this morning. And uh, yes, I guess we'll know in a couple hours what the Bank of Canada is going to do with uh, the interest rates again. Absolutely. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll just dive right into that right now, uh, what you're hearing. And I know it's an interesting, uh, you know, kind of a tightrope that you walk, Justin. Your job is to, to, to sell houses, to help clients buy houses, but not to finance them. But obviously, these are conversations I'm sure you have with your clients. What have you been hearing? I know that the stats, uh, you know, promote that we've had 10 increases in 18 months. What have these conversations been like? Well, you know, definitely the uh, higher interest rates is having an impact on the consumers who are looking to purchase a home, whether it's their purchasing power or what they're, again, qualifying for as well. And obviously, there's those who have had you know, uh, variable interest rate mortgages, which are obviously deeply impacted by the rate hikes as well, which is uh, adding a lot of cost to the household um, costs every single month, right? So it is definitely having an impact and it's why we've seen such an active, active real estate market in the lower price points, especially in the townhouse and the apartment segment here in Calgary, because obviously those are the more affordable products which is uh you know being snapped up rather quickly what about i was going to add that my next question was going to be are you seeing different sectors affected differently you lasered in on the apartments and the townhomes for example what about the super high-end homes and i'm talking those homes you know whether it's 800 to 1.5 million are they being affected as well or is that a different demo you know, it is a different demo. However, we're still seeing really good activity and strong activity in that segment as well. You've got to keep in mind, we have incredibly low supply of, uh, you know, just under 1.2 months of inventory. And when we look at the single family detached segment, we only have 1,648 active listings on the market right now which is down by about 30 percent of last year and you know and, and if you look even higher up in the you know two three million plus markets i mean that market is still pretty healthy as well and perhaps those people aren't uh, impacted by the interest rates as much as uh, the people in the lower price points absolutely now let's uh, dig into this report the remax report it looks nationally released yesterday and, and according to the report the housing market will remain flat this fall due to the high interest rates. But again, that's across the board, across Canada. Do you anticipate that this holds true for Calgary in our, in our real estate market? 
Uh, I don't anticipate that uh, that will hold true here. I mean, clearly Calgary seems to be the uh, favor of the year on the shopping list for Canadians who are being priced out of the markets in Ontario, in Vancouver, where the prices are significantly higher. And, uh, you know, with the migration coming from those provinces and immigration, for that matter, where people are seeing Calgary as a very attractive option, again, their perspective is that... uh, Calgary is very affordable and uh, you know they are obviously adding to the demand here in the marketplace which you know is going to continue to put upward pressure on pricing here you know with uh, a little over a month of inventory and uh, no real big supply coming onto the market in the near future I think it's going to continue to be a very active market very challenging for buyers and uh, you know again prices are most likely going to continue going upwards, even if we have one or two more rate increases. So we, we safe to say, Justin, and you're the expert, and I throw these terms around, um, seller's market seems to be the case straight through until the end of 2023? Yeah, that's what it looks like. I mean, keep in mind, uh, a balanced real estate market is considered to be anywhere between four to six months of supply. And, uh, you know, clearly we would love to have more supply in the market to to sell to the buyers that are looking at, obviously. And, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be uh, many more homes coming on the market, obviously. And, uh, you know, people that are looking and considering making a move, if they are a homeowner, they're kind of staying on the sidelines as well because, you know, you're not going to sell your house if you don't have a place to go. And I think that if you are someone who is considering making a move, whether you're moving up or downsizing, you probably want to talk to your bank first and foremost if you do require some financing to get the best advice on what mortgage product to go with, whether you're going with you know, a short-term fixed rate and then rolling into a variable rate after that with hopes that we're going to see a lower interest rate environment in the future and uh, find out a game plan of uh, you know, how to get into that next home. Again, that's a choice, Justin, for, you know, if, you, if you're considering. I know some folks are just up against it looking to have a roof over their head and they have, you know, trying to scrape together the cash to do so. Uh, but for those other folks looking to, to kind of, you know, get in, for example, to the market, maybe some younger folks are, have moved here and have been renting and want to, you know, purchase. Is there a bonus, even with these higher rates, to get in earlier than, or rather than sit on the sidelines and wait for the rates to, to, to lower, which could be months or maybe a year or two? Well, this is where, I mean, we don't have tomorrow's newspaper today, right? And uh, we don't necessarily, I mean, we anticipate that the prices are going to continue to go up. But, you know, if you are a, a tenant and you're looking to get into home ownership, the sooner you can actually get into home ownership, again, if it is right for you at this time and moment in your life, uh, you know, make that move and, you know, get into the home ownership, start building some equity. And, um, you know, we're going to see, obviously, I mean, some people will actually combine uh, and partner up with someone to make a purchase, you know, if it is out of their price range. We're also seeing, you know, people uh, getting some support from their parents and and help and with a down payment and perhaps even for qualifying as well with the mortgage. I think it was 18 months ago or within the past two years anyway, Justin, that we'd heard about an influx of buyers to the Calgary area moving from Toronto, maybe Vancouver, those, you know, higher priced cities. Are we still seeing that trend? We sure are. Calgary's calling. And I mean, I guess Alberta is calling. That was a campaign that the Alberta government was uh, promoting quite heavily out in Ontario. And I guess that campaign was a success. 
so yeah, no, you know what? Uh, we're still seeing a, a ton of people each and every day inquiring with us uh, with assistance to purchase here in Calgary from, you know, BC and uh, Ontario. And uh, they're looking at Calgary as an incredible place to obviously obtain home ownership because of the affordability. And uh, we all know that... Uh, Calgary and Alberta is a great place to live. We have, uh, you know, lower taxes, and uh, Calgary, obviously, short drive to the mountains, our playground. Mm-hmm. Well, I know, I know you and your team and all professional realtors in the city of Calgary are ready to, to do business. They, they want to talk to clients. They want to get them in the houses that they want, or they want to sell the homes that, you know, clients want to move on from. However, yep, you want their financing in order first. So I'm wondering if you can give some advice to those folks when it comes to, you know, getting the best advice and uh, getting the best rate, why it's important to talk to maybe not just your your around the corner from the your house uh, bank, but to talk to a mortgage professional or a broker. Uh, how would we get more mileage from, from one of those professionals? Well, I think it's uh, really good to speak to a mortgage broker because a mortgage broker will have, you know, many different sort of mortgage products available to, to you and uh, different rates, uh, different products. And again, some banks will obviously have different repayment uh, programs. You want to obviously also make sure that you have a mortgage that is portable if you are going to be moving. Uh, this is one of the great things about mortgages in Canada where we are are able to uh, bring the mortgage from house to house and keep the rate and uh, you know just make sure that you find the mortgage solution that is best suitable for you and uh, your financial situation and uh, clearly get pre-approved make sure that you do a firm pre-approval where you submit all the documents that they want job letters and so forth to make sure that you have everything in order because Chances are the first time that you go out and look at a house, you may actually fall in love and find that perfect house. And you got to make sure that you have everything in order. And that includes your down payment as well. If you are pulling your down payment from your RSPs, make sure that it's sitting in your bank account ready to be deployed. Very interesting time. And again, I'm sure you'll be having your eye on the rate announcement coming our way at 8 o'clock Calgary time. It's an interesting time, Justin. Thank you so much for your insight. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. You too. Justin Haver, realtor with Justin Haver and Associates, Remax First. You can find out more about what he does online at Justin Haver. That's H-A-V-R-E dot com. Well, they called it a freedom convoy, but how do we balance the need for free speech with the need for public order? Joining us to discuss is Clarice Perrin, instructor and Ph.D. student, Department of Philosophy at Dalhousie University. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Well, we're watching this trial, uh, news coverage uh, surrounding the Tamara Leach and Chris Barber uh, trial in the Freedom Convoy case. Uh, If you can tie uh, the the connection in your mind uh, to uh, the limits of free speech in a democracy and this case, how do you see this? Yeah, definitely. So I think what has been um, at tension uh, leading up to the case during the protests, and then, of course, what the charges uh, look like they're going to be. It's all about how do we limit um, or balance um, our human right to things like free speech or peaceful protest with the harms that those things can produce and how that might infringe on the rights of others. So when we think about human rights, what's usually missed from popular discourse is that we have competing obligations to make sure that not only is everyone else, including our government, protecting our freedoms, um, but that we have the same duties to others. Um, Otherwise, 
the whole the whole basis of uh, of freedoms uh, of rights it comes down to as long as everyone can have equal rights um, it has to be applied equally to everyone so there's always natural limits to the types of freedoms that we can have okay so when we talk about it you're saying it, this distinguishes the political expression from the actions by leach and barber in this specific case away from the freedom of speech because of the nature of the disruption to a certain extent yeah yeah so looking at some of the um, opening statements made by the lawyers it looks like they're making a clear stance just because you express certain political views that's not why you're on trial but you're on trial because um you know the quote-unquote peaceful protest that you coordinated across Canada at the borders in Ottawa in various cities um, wasn't peaceful. It interrupted and interfered with the safety of a lot of other individuals in Canada, therefore infringing on their rights and freedoms to act as how they would wish. In this case, because it was so front and center, you know, as, as far as, you know, the use, we had video, uh, we had footage from the organizers themselves. Uh, it's in the real very much when it happened in the court of public opinion. How does that change, uh, you know, a case like this? I think it makes it a little bit messier. Um, uh, rights discourse has been a, an important part of ethical theory um, for hundreds of years. I'm an ethicist. Um, but since rights discourse really came into sort of the public sphere, you know, as the United Declaration of Human Rights and then taken up, in the Canadian Charter and other types of uh, human rights documents, um, it's become a little bit separated from what does it actually mean to have a right? Um, it's no longer um, safe or prudent to have in a society if you have a right that somehow trumps everyone else's right and you take sort of a selfish or self, like an exceptionalist um, approach to human rights. The whole reason that human rights came about in the first place is to, um, really resonate with people that everyone deserves basic necessities and considerations and people including their governments should be committed to upholding that so i think once rights get tangled up in um the legal stage as well as in popular discourse and they're used by protests in certain ways um you really lose sight of what it means to have a right and that means that we have important and strong ethical duties to make sure that everyone has those rights in this particular case, and by the way, we're speaking with Clarice Perrin, instructor, PhD student from the Department of Philosophy at Dalhousie University. In this case, in, in maybe several cases over the past handful of years, uh, Clarice, and, and when we talk about free speech, how much of a monkey wrench has the Internet and uh, social media thrown into the conversation when it comes to the parameters surrounding free speech? Oh, yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> it's accelerated. I think some of the confusions about what it means to have free speech. Um, it, it's very natural that our rights in a society are limited. You can't just walk down the street and do whatever you want. If that includes, for example, killing someone, right? Like, it makes sense that there's a natural limit to the things that you can or can't do. And those limits extend to free speech. As soon as that free speech turns into something like hate speech, and individuals or groups are feeling threatened, like, that's something that I think social media <laughs> has really exacerbated. It's become so much easier and quicker to spread things like hate speech. Um, the free speech just gets taken completely out of context and there's no way to control it or try to mitigate it.
is that a case maybe, you know, we just turned on the fire hose and everybody's got a platform now and it's prevalent with people sharing their views? Oh, definitely. Once some of, some people can gain um, a large platform, a large following, it's almost impossible to start to tamper some of those views or control the harm that it's done. All right. So what lessons in the end can we... Uh, you know, take from this trial to teach us about the nuanced uh, boundaries of free speech and the responsibilities it entails in a democratic society. Can we learn from this and can we implement the results of this trial? I hope so. Um, you know, we've been through quite a bit of polarizing um, social events in the last few years. And I think that if we really come down and think about what human rights means, it can actually be quite unifying. Um, if we start to think about our obligations and duties to others, then maybe we can come to terms um, with just stronger and better solutions that work for both sides, regardless of what your political views might be. All right. Again, timely with the trial on right now. We appreciate your views on the topic. Thanks so much, Clarice. Thank you for having me. That is Clarice Perrin, instructor and a PhD student, Department of Philosophy at Dalhousie University. What sort of an impact will artificial intelligence have on the education system? Joining us to discuss as a new school year kicks off is Sarah Eaton, Associate Professor of Education at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you and thank you for your time, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Well, AI, not just in education, but across the globe, is impacting many different things. And obviously, we laser in on education when we've seen the advent of something like ChatGPT, for example. So I'm wondering what your thought is on the role that AI will play in the classroom. You know, I, I mean, I should start by opening with saying any child who's five years old or younger will never know school without artificial intelligence. So that's the school year that we're starting with now, right? Any child that's in kindergarten today, uh, by the time they graduate from high school, it will be an even different world. The key thing that teachers have to grapple with this year is how or if they choose to incorporate it in their classrooms. What does that look like? How do we do it? Right now, there's not a lot of guidance out there on this. So I think um, individual teachers are uh, might be struggling a little bit. Might be struggling, perhaps looking for some sort of guidance or a map to deal with AI. So, so what can teachers do? What, what tools are available or pathways uh, to ensure that students don't use AI, for example, to cheat or plagiarize on a, on a paper? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we've had some great uh, guidance come out globally from organizations like UNESCO. And the key thing is that use of these tools needs to be supervised and transparent. So if children are going to use or adult students are going to use this technology, uh, it's key to let the teachers know, for teachers to have conversations with students about what is okay, what is not okay, and also for teachers to know what applications students are using. So we talk about ChatGPT, you open by talking about that. That's a kind of become this generic term, almost like Kleenex is used to refer to facial tissue, but there's thousands and thousands of applications available. So if students decide to use them, they need to know about things like, um, do they need to create an account? How is their content being used? Do they need to surrender personal information like an email address? So there's other concerns as well, like around privacy and so forth, that I think are important pieces of this conversation. But the two key things really are that the use of it needs to be transparent and it needs to be supervised. Okay, with that transparency, I'm thinking back, I'm of a certain age where 
at first calculators weren't involved or allowed in a classroom setting, and then they became part of the curriculum when it came uh, to math, and it became a staple, those Texas instrument calculators to a certain extent. So do you see it being used like that uh, as, as a measured tool within a classroom in the future? Absolutely. There's already uh, really strong indications with Microsoft and Google Workspace that artificial intelligence is soon going to be fully integrated into those technologies that we use every day in our classrooms, whether it's Google Docs or Microsoft Word. It's coming. I saw an, uh, an announcement last week from Google saying that they have a new artificial intelligence powered note-taking app designed specifically for students. So it's already on our doorstep. Wow, incredible. What about the other side of the technology for artificial intelligence and you know, tools and services I'm thinking about that can detect when AI has been used? Uh, on the educational side, are these tools being implemented and uh, do you think you will see more of them being laid out for educators? Gosh, I hope not. Um, there was an announcement last week from OpenAI, which is the company behind ChatGPT, that they've declared that uh, AI text detection tools don't work. Um, and so in some ways, I think that if you ask me, companies that are trying to sell detection tool services or licenses to products, they might be trying to sell snake oil because over and over again, researchers and people who work in industry have shown that these detection tools don't work. And they certainly should not be used as the only piece of evidence in an allegation of academic misconduct against a student. So we're kind of in a brave new world where we've got the applications um, and then there's talk about detection. But what are we trying to detect? Because the corpus or database used to build these large language models that language was written by humans. Wow. What about as rudimentary? And by the way, we're speaking with Sarah Eaton, Associate Professor of Education at the University of Calgary. Uh, I threw this out on, on the program months and months ago. Um, as far as, you know, it's exam time. It's time to do a paper on, what, on a widget. To do that paper on a widget, uh, but guess what? You have to do it in person after studying. We're going to give you a pencil and we're going to give you paper. You have to write it down by hand. Could we get down to that, you know, sort of a path to, to uh, you know, secure authenticity from these students? Yeah, I've heard about these kind of approaches before. And I got to tell you, I find that approach really puzzling because when our students of today go into the workforce, are they really going to be using pencils and papers when they go to work? Um, you know, a colleague at mine at UFC last week at orientation had a crossword puzzle ready for 100 students to do, and she told me that one student brought a pen to do that crossword puzzle. Students are coming to our campus this year without pens and pencils. They're coming with tablets, phones, and laptops. That's the reality that we need to prepare for. But nevertheless, uh, just to play devil's advocate here, Sarah, I mean, you know, I, I, I do incredibly well in high school and in university. Uh, but these are materials that the AI has some knowledge of. If I enter a very specific career and I have to do my own work and I have not prepared to problem solve because I've been so dependent on AI, where does that leave, you know, a potential employee? Yeah, it's a great question, right? So, I mean, as educators, I think this is going to really push a radical shift in what are we thinking, you know, in terms of like, what do our students need to know? So they need to know things like evaluative judgment. They need to have great decision-making skills. They need to be able to tell facts from fiction. They need to have um, ethical decision-making skills. But the idea of needing to regurgitate information, well, that's pretty, that's pretty passe. And so as an educator, one of the questions I ask is, doing an assignment that can be done by AI, is it really a good assignment for students? 
So mm-hmm. I think that this, this thing during COVID that, okay, we changed our assessments, we changed how we were teaching, um, but there was this idea we would go back to something, back to normal, but we can't go back from artificial intelligence. It's already everywhere. So this, I think, will push teaching and learning in the same way that the internet did 30 years ago. We'd never tell our kids today that they can't do research on the internet. That's a very good point. This is a super timely topic with school going back in, and it's a topic that I'm sure we'll continue to discuss in the months and and even years ahead. Thanks so much for your time, Sarah. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. That is Sarah Eden, Associate Professor of Education at the University of Calgary.